a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I appreciate you joining me. I know that uh, there's a lot going on. Life is getting more complicated by the day or so it seems. Well, this program is here to uh, not so much tell you what to think, but more to help point you in the direction of independent and critical thought about what's happening around us. I'll explain more about that in just a few moments. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, also LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, HSLAmmo.com, and SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, just to name a few. So, with that said, welcome to the show. I know right now there are a lot of people whose minds are pretty much on what's happening in, uh, in Ukraine. And I, I get it, you know, war is a big deal. And this is, this is where a lot of people's attention is going to be. But right now is a very critical time for you and for me to, to be extremely cautious about uh, what we believe, what we share, the information that's flowing toward us from any number of different sources. And I'm, I'm sorry if that sounds pedantic, like, no, we got to be careful. Someone may lie to us. But the deception is so universal and, and it's so easy to get caught up because of the nature of war, because of the horrific, um, you know, images and just everything that's at stake. The human suffering, the, the, you know, quest for power on the part of, you know, people in authority. It's an extremely dangerous time. And I just, I want to remind you that Western political leaders are really feeling good at this moment because... They right now have something which will distract us from their violation of our human rights for the last two years. Right? It moved it right off the radar screen. Oh, well, now we've got something far more important. And even worse, they're going to sit there and preen and, and propagandize for freedom and rights against some foreign beast, while at the same time they're doing everything in their power to destroy our freedoms and, and deny our rights. Okay, if that sounds tinfoil hat crazy, I understand. All I can say is uh, I I watch I watch the the goings on of the world on a day-to-day basis. I try to make sense. I try not to marinate too much in the negative. And yesterday was a hard day because of that. But my point is I've been paying attention. I mean paying close attention for about the last 30 years. And even I struggle. You know, sometimes, you know, well, who can you believe on matters like this? You know, it's, it's, it's easy to get caught up in the emotion. The fear, of course, is a huge motivator. And yesterday, for instance, I spent some time, you know, watching different, uh, different videos and accounts of here's what's happening in Ukraine, you know, and here's footage. Oh, look, here's a helicopter being shot down. And uh, here's, uh, you know, some burned up tanks. And I, I finally had to break away. Because I could, I could feel the the fear and and just the the war fever starting to to get in and soak into my psyche. 
So I had to kind of give myself a little bit of a break. And I see a ton of cut and paste stuff. Well, you know, here are the reasons why Russia is invading Ukraine. And I know this may sound a little bit callous. I, I really, I'm not indifferent to, to the suffering of anybody who's facing war right now, particularly the people in, in Ukraine. But I would ask you to please be very careful about uh, what you share. In other words, really take the time to, to vet what you think. Most of what we know is what someone else has told us. And so when you have all these people in the news media and different political leaders, and frankly, I'm even seeing this in, in the people who normally are, are, you know, the ones who lead out in terms of like freedom circles, and, and they're all jumping on the bandwagon. Oh, if you're not uh, criticizing Putin, then you are no more than an accessory to his crimes. And I'm sorry. I, I'm not a brave man and I'm not a smart man and I'm not an accomplished man, but where was I going with this? Oh yeah. I'll make up my own mind. Thank you very much. I will be able to make up my own mind because I do trust my ability to, to dig and, and to find, you know, the information that will help me have a better understanding and wherever it may lead, that's where I'm going to go. Now, I'm not trying to convince you, you know, hey, Vladimir Putin is just this poor, misunderstood guy. But when, when you have this cacophony of voices telling you, you have to hate him, you have to be united against him. Just consider that many of the voices that are telling you this are the very same voices that were telling you to shut up and take the shot. Shut up and put on your mask. Shut up and stay home. Shut up and close your business. What makes you think that their, their goals and their aims have changed just because now Russia has, has said, okay, our red line has been crossed. The red line being that uh, the closer you, you come to trying to bring Ukraine into NATO, that is intolerable to have military infrastructure put right on our doorstep. I mean, I've heard some comparisons to the Cuban Missile Crisis. I wasn't around then. And so it's, it's hard to say, well, that's a, that's a good Comparison. But the bottom line is, what is going on over there really is something that needs to be settled between Russia and Ukraine. And with the rest of the world community jumping in, and, and as you're going to hear, you know, it's, it's causing all kinds of interesting bit of fallout. Uh, a friend sent me a story earlier today about how Russian oligarchs, in fact, hang on, hang on a second, I'm going to pull this up real quick because I want to make sure I'm getting the thing. Russian oligarchs. Turn to crypto to skirt sanctions, okay? So sanctions have been placed against, you know, Russia. Well, the people with, uh, with a lot of money, some in, many without their government, they're turning to crypto as a means of keeping greedy, grubby government hands off of their money. Now, you may not be a Russian oligarch, but uh, you may be somebody who's concerned in keeping your money. Maybe we'll have to talk about that. In fact, we will talk about the war on cash coming up. Here's one thing I do want to ask you to keep in mind. If you're looking for a source that isn't trying to sell you someone else's official agenda, I'm going to stick my neck out and I'm going to recommend go to Glenn Greenwald's Substack. Glenn, it's uh, greenwald.substack.com. And just click subscribe. Now, you can be a paying subscriber. You can be a non-paying subscriber. That's totally up to you. But of all the journalists out there, and there's some, there are some really great ones that, that are covering what's, what's going on here. But I would put Glenn at the top of the list of people that I would listen to for a solid and objective, or mostly objective, as objective as he can make it, take 
on what's happening. He points out that the outbreak of war between two or more nations is obviously one of the worst events that can happen for humanity, if not clearly the single worst. And he says, for that reason, when it happens, emotions are extremely high, nationalism, tribalism surge, the range of permissible debate radically shrinks, and the political and media class unite in lockstep, messaging across the political spectrum, and anyone even slightly off-key or questioning of that script is hunted down and held up as a heretic and a traitor. And he links a bunch of different, uh, different tweets that show this. I mean, Tulsi Gabbard said this war and suffering could have easily been avoided if Biden administration, NATO, had simply acknowledged Russia's legitimate security concerns regarding Ukraine becoming a member of NATO, which would mean U.S.-NATO forces right on Russia's border. And here's a guy responding, you need to throw your army uniform out, you effing traitor. Others telling her, you're a traitor and a coward. Resign your commission and go home to your handlers in Moscow. Here's John Pavlovitz. Tucker Carlson needs to be held accountable. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's not funny. It's it's actually very sad, but wow. That's the kind of thing that uh, that is holding sway. And, and you're seeing it from conservative ranks as well. Glenn Greenwald says this toxic climate naturally fosters high incentives to either cling faithfully to the script or to remain silent, at least until more space opens up for dissent. But he says attempting to do anything other than recite from the officially imposed book of conventional wisdom is particularly futile at best on social media. 30 years ago, Noam Chomsky explained why the inherent constraints of network television, specifically the demand that all points be made quickly in three or four minutes between television breaks, in other words, what TV news professionals refer to as the need for concision ensures that conventional wisdom can only be affirmed, but never meaningfully challenged. So he says, with all that in mind, I have no intention of trying to use social media to discuss this highly complex and dangerous war, and one that in- produces intense levels of emotionalism and tribal unity. But he is discussing the war, and actually he links to a discussion that he had that uh, was recorded, and I think it's uh, now being uh, played on on Rumble. I would just recommend, if you're looking for an informed point of view, you can do a lot worse than Glenn Greenwald. So that's not telling you you have to believe him, but I'm saying as far as sources that don't seem to be hijacked for someone else's agenda, this is one of the better ones that I've found. So I'm sharing it with you. Stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I feel like I'm starting out with such gravity today, and yet, uh, do we not live in some pretty grave times? I mean, just everywhere I look, there is something going on that is is keeping life spicy. And uh, there's a part of me that kind of recognizes it, like, okay, all right, you know, I, I can handle it if we're if we're having a little bit spicy episode of life here. But most importantly, I want to make sure that I'm doing the best I can where I stand and uh, looking after myself and and the people in my life who are most important to me. Having said that, I encourage you click on the link for lifesavingfood.com and just 
take a look and see if there's anything that you could use to bolster your self-reliance in an unstable, an unstable time. That's all I'm asking. Now, I will also tell you that uh, right now on ReadyWise Food Storage, you could save 45% off the retail price. By the way, that's with free shipping as well. So it may be a really good time to act on that uh, little urge you've heard in the back of your head saying, hey, maybe we should do this. I've provided the link in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com, lifesavingfood.com. So the pathway to authoritarian rule is uh, it's a gradual one, which is why most people don't recognize it when it's happening. It's usually after the fact they look around and say, something's not right here, <laughs> as, the, as the chains are slowly being placed around their necks. Well, Barry Brownstein has a great explanation of how worshiping authority leads to tyranny with five lessons from North Korea. He says, MSNBC's Nicole Wallace wants the world to know that she's a Fauci groupie. She describes herself as a virtuous devotee. I'm thrice vaccinated, mask adherent. I buy KN95 masks by the, you know, caseload. They're in every pocket. I wear them everywhere except when I sit down. Now, Wallace is not the only one to express adoration for a politician or Dr. Fauci. Gwyneth Paltrow, for example, once expressed her wish that President Obama be granted unlimited dictatorial powers. Abuse of power mounts as politicians and bureaucrats amass devotees. The liberal principles that built Western civilization slide away. Now, you may be a devotee in the cult of Mountain Dew, but Barry Brownstein says no matter how fervent you are, others are free to eschew soda. Daily, we exercise our freedom to choose among alternatives provided in the marketplace. Elect a politician or appoint a bureaucrat and alternatives vanish. Professor John Marini warns of the unbridled power <clears throat> of bureaucratic agencies, saying, in the modern administrative state, the power of government is unlimited. And the rights of citizens and the rule of law itself rests on a precarious ground. End quote. Now, recently, Dr. Fauci called out non-believers who give him a real problem. He bemoans the disinformation stopping people from pulling together his way. Barry Brownstein says Fauci shows no spirit of inquiry to alternative views. On the contrary, Fauci seems to believe he is the keeper of universal truth that should be followed without question. Human beings are fallible. Elevated to the role of cult leader, we shouldn't be surprised when the leader shows no humility. Dr. Fauci works to besmirch non-believers holding opposing, world, holding opposing views, including world-renowned epidemiologists who, gra- who drafted the Great Barrington Declaration, or among those he aims to discredit. In his book, The Cult of the Presidency, Gene Healy observed that presidential candidates often think they are applying for the job of national savior, If they campaign and talk that way, it's because many Americans expect a savior. Healy writes, quote, Few Americans find anything amiss in the notion that it is the president's duty to solve all large national problems and to unite us all in the service of a higher calling. The vision of the president as national guardian and redeemer is so ubiquitous that it goes unnoticed. Well, anything that goes unnoticed, says Barry Brownstein, is very difficult to change. He says, when Americans behave like devotees to bureaucrats and politicians, much can go wrong. For instance, North Koreans worship authority. Now, America is not in danger of sinking to the levels of madness found in North Korea. Yet to avoid further forfeiture of our liberties, we can recognize the warning signs of where the worship of authority mindset can lead us. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, in his introduction to the abridged edition of the Gulag Archipelago, cautions, 
there is always this fallacious belief. It would not be the same here. Here such things are impossible. Alas, all the evil of the 20th century is possible everywhere on earth. Don't you just love Solzhenitsyn's uh, wisdom? I mean, that is just so good. Most North Koreans, says Barry Brownstein, are reduced to mere survival, but Suki Kim's book, Without You, There Is No Us, offers a unique view into the mindset of the elite class. In the COVID era, Kim provides an instructive North Korean cautionary tale for those seeking to understand the mindset that fuels tyranny. Now, Kim was born in South Korea before immigrating to America at 13. For six months in 2011, she returned to North Korea as an undercover missionary teaching English at a Pyongyang University at Pyongyang University of Science and Technology. All of her students were male children of North Korea's ruling class. Speaking fluent Korean allowed her to gain unique insights. She and her students were under constant observation by minders. Even so, Kim was able to build human connections with the 19 and 20-year-old Pyongyang elites who knew little more <clears> the <throat> little other than pronouncements they had been fed. They were not starving but their lives were as regimented as other North Koreans. So here's one of the first lessons from this. Lesson one, when lies become truth. In a country where nearly everything is a lie, lying is a way of life for these elite children. Kim was unnerved by how lying extended to even the most mundane things for which there was no reason to lie. Of course, lying and secrecy were all they had ever known. Kim observes, quote, The speed with which they lied was unnerving. It came too naturally to them, such as the moment when a student told me that he had cloned a rabbit as a fifth grader, or when another said that a scientist in his country had discovered a way to change blood type A to blood type B, or when the whole class, in, class insisted that playing basketball caused a person to grow taller. She says, I was not sure if having been told such lies as children, they could not differentiate between truth and lies or whether it was a survival method they had mastered, end quote. So Barry Brownstein says, look, they believed their great leader was admired around the world and that their nation was the most powerful and prosperous on the planet. In a country where the government invents its own truth, how could they be expected to do otherwise? Kim Chillingly writes, either they were so terrified they felt compelled to lie and boast of the greatness of their leader, or they sincerely believed everything they were telling me. I could not decide which was worse. So, Fauci has his truth about masks, vaccines, therapeutics for COVID, gain-of-function research, and natural immunity. Sycophantic healthcare professionals to avoid a professional gulag adopt Fauci's truths. Why are so many Americans eager to cooperate with those who would regiment their health care. Lesson number two, when knowledge is withheld, ignorance reaches dangerous levels. Now, in North Korea, access to computers is very limited. Kim reports her elite students had no access to the Internet as any knowledge of the outside world would threaten the continuous lies. And she relates an interaction with one of her students, saying, One of my most sophisticated students, Song Seong Jin, asked me if I could help him find information about alcohol. He wanted to write about its advantages and disadvantages, but he had never drunk alcohol and did not know how to go about researching it. He was the son of a doctor who had been surrounded by medical information all of his life with the ambition of becoming a doctor himself, yet he did not have a clue as to the effects of alcohol. What he was suggesting, I realized, was that I look it up for him on the Internet. Now, on other occasions, she recounts the sight of the country's best students of science and technology staring blankly at screens was so pathetic that I was seized by a pang of anger mixed with sadness as soon as I left the room.
Now, Barry Brownstein says, look, there are no official government censors in America. Big tech does the heavy lifting by squashing challenges to the official narrative. Non-believers find their social media posts throttled or censored, or they're deplatformed from media channels. We'll hit the pause button here for a moment. We'll come back and we'll hit the other lessons of how worshiping authority leads to tyranny. And most of us probably don't even recognize the ways in which we embrace authority and sometimes elevate it and put it on a pedestal as something that cannot be questioned. Well, anything that you put above reality is something that you're worshiping. Think about that. It's a a form of idolatry. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Welcome back to our never-ending quest for clarity. Sharing with you an article from Barry Brownstein. This was written for the American Institute for Economic Research. Worshipping authority leads to tyranny. Five lessons from North Korea. Here's lesson number three. Critical thinking does not develop when the truth is predetermined. Ooh, now this is one that... uh, this one might actually cause a little bit of discomfort once you see it in, in the context of how this applies to us. Now, this teacher in North Korea or this, uh, this uh, researcher who went to North Korea for six months says, uh, Kim tried to teach the young elites the, the essence of writing an essay, but critical thinking was impossible. She said, I emphasize the importance of essays since as scientists, they would one day have to write papers to prove their theories. But in reality, nothing was ever proven in their world since everything was at the whim of the great leader. Their writing skills were as stunted as their research skills. Writing inevitably consisted of an endless repetition of his achievements, none of which was ever verified, since they lacked the concept of backing up a claim with science. A quick look at the articles in the daily paper revealed the exact same tone from start to finish with neither progression nor pacing. There was no beginning and no end. In short... The basic three- or five-paragraph essay with a thesis, an introduction, a body paragraph with supporting details, and a conclusion was entirely foreign to them. Kim's students did not have the slightest idea that assertion should be supported by evidence. She explains, as always, their government had sown misinformation, and my students' claims lacked any basis in reality. So I could hardly expect them to back up their theses. But she adds, misinformation and lack of information were not the only problems in teaching them how to write an essay. In their storytelling, a conclusion was always predetermined. Kim reports there was no proof, no checks and balances, unless, of course, they wanted to prove that the great leader had single-handedly written hundreds of operas and thousands of books and saved the nation and done a, a miraculous number of things. Their entire system was designed not to be questioned and to squash critical thinking. So the form of an essay in which a thesis had to be proven was antithetical to their entire system. The writer of an essay acknowledges the arguments opposing his thesis and refutes them. Here, opposition was not an option. Today in America, the conclusion, too, is predetermined. Barry Brownstein says when the official vaccine narrative is challenged, devotees of Dr. Fauci chant, proven safe and effective. Anything but the official COVID narrative is dismissed as misinformation or a conspiracy theory. Is the capacity for critical thinking withering away in America? I know how I would answer that. Lesson number four, tyrants maintain power by demanding devotion. 
Brownstein writes that Kim describes objects of devotion. Virtually every building is adorned with a slogan. Every TV screen with the same image, the way advertising billboards fill the horizon in Western societies. But in North Korea, there is only one product, the great leader. Kim was sickened by the images of the silent villages alongside the roads, the gaunt faces outside the van window, the great leader slogans and great leader songs and great leader portraits that marked every building, every living creature, every hushed breath like a branding iron. Great leader images themselves are sacred. Kim describes the social norms. Make sure you do not throw away, fold, tear, or damage any visual representation of them. Do not point at such images either. It would be considered an act of disrespect and you would be punished. Kim's elite students were as ignorant of the rest of the world as were other North Koreans. They were always comparing themselves to the outside world, none of which none of them had ever seen, declaring themselves the best. She says this insistence on best seemed strangely childlike, and the world's best, the words best and greatest were used so frequently that they gradually lost their meaning. Kim adds the idea that North Korea alone excelled while other nations were falling behind seemed a near obsession. North Korean leaders are trusted to have mystical knowledge about all things. As people starve, leaders claim more exaggerated knowledge about everything from fish farming to apple growing. Kim shares the claim that hundreds of thousands of apple trees that were so special that they uh, bore fruit within a year. Or our great general comrade Kim Jong-il is not only the greatest in leading our powerful and prosperous nation, but even well-versed in apple growing. Notice the parallels? Believing that Fauci is the world's wisest doctor, devotees obsessively obey his directives. With obedience, there's no need to take responsibility for your own decisions. Just follow Dr. Fauci's one-size-fits-all guidance. And lesson number five, this is a big one. Politicians are not the source of goodness. Barry Brownstein writes, there is no private property in North Korea, and family ties have all been destroyed by relocating people all over the country. Thus, North Koreans passively believe all goodness comes from the North Korean despot And Kim's students became preachy about his greatness, which they called his solicitude. If they got a good grade, it was thanks to his solicitude. If their English improved, well, that also had to do with his solicitude. Kim writes, whenever the teachers pointed out anything that made life outside sound better than in North Korea, they inevitably brought up the solicitude of the great leader under whose reign everything was free. But of course, mostly unavailable. National Geographic's 2006 documentary episode of their series Inside North Korea illuminates the mindset of the North Korean people. Filmmaker Lisa Ling accompanied a Nepalese eye surgeon on a humanitarian mission to perform cataract surgery on a thousand North Koreans. Because of rampant malnutrition and poor medical care, cataract-induced blindness is alarmingly present even among young people in the population of North Korea. The closing scenes of the documentary are instructive, The bandages are being removed for the patients who have had cataract surgery. As with every dwelling in the country, portraits of Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il hang on the room's walls. One by one, as the bandages come off, patients bow and weep before the Kims while ignoring the medical staff who restored their eyesight. They proclaim new oaths of praise and obedience because you have brought us your light and greatness. I swear I will serve you. Now, Barry Brownstein says in Barbara Demick's Nothing to Envy, Lives in North Korea, we recognize where an us-versus-them mindset leads. Demick tells the story of a doctor brought in to treat a prisoner sentenced for operating a private business. The prisoner was malnourished and suffering from acute bronchitis. 
The doctor wanted to treat the prisoner with an antibiotic, but a superior ruled, he's a convict. Let's save the antibiotic for someone else. Now, today in America, there are health professionals who would justify depriving the unvaccinated of medical care and or ration care based on social justice criteria. Dystopian North Korean scenes seem light years away from the American experience. Yet, as Dr. Mark McDonald points out, vaccine mandates seem designed to ensure a population of dependent, passive, disempowered workers living under the thumb of a government that cares nothing for their well-being. Kim focused her book on the relatively well-fed elites, but she shared glimpses of the lives of ordinary North Koreans who were markedly smaller in every way with haunted eyes. She says, when we passed closer to one of the construction sites, the workers became visible with hollowed eyes and sunken cheeks, clothing tattered, heads shaved, looking like Nazi concentration camp victims. The sight was so shocking that both Katie, another teacher, and I drew in sharp breaths. We could not say anything or show our feelings since the minder sat nearby, but we exchanged glances, and Katie mouthed the exact same word that struck me at that moment. Slaves. Kim's students lived in lived lives rather of relative privilege, seemingly unaware of the suffering of other North Koreans. Her students asked, Do you find our city beautiful? Kim did not respond honestly, but thought, I did not find Pyongyang beautiful. It was monotone. It was a monotone, bleak city filled with concrete buildings and people dressed in rags who looked starved. But it was not Pyongyang's physical attributes that made it so ugly in my eyes. It was what it stood for. It was the most horrible city in the world to me, and every time I saw it in the distance, on the horizon, outside the van window, I felt disheartened. Pyongyang was the Xanadu of North Korea, the city the rest of the country slaved to feed. It was a greedy, blood-sucking monster, and sometimes I just wished it would go up in smoke. The title of Kim's book, Without You, There Is No Us, comes from a song her students chanted in a daily ritual. You, of course, referred to at the time the ruling despot Kim Jong-il. Barry Brownstein says there is no questioning in North Korea. The official narrative can never be challenged. If their book said it was true, you can't tell them that it's a lie. Nothing, it seemed, could break through their belligerent isolation. Moreover, this attitude left no room for any argument since all roads led to just one conclusion. If one day her bright students would be free to question, Kim wondered the questions they would have, the questions they should be asking, the questions they would realize they'd not been asking because they did not imagine they could, or because asking meant they could no longer exist in their system. Well, today, many Americans, including healthcare professionals, stifle their questions because to ask means they can no longer exist in their system. Inquiry is being crushed. Freedom is eroding. America's soft crushing of inquiry is far removed from North Korea's brutal totalitarian dystopia. Yet lessons from Korea are warning signs. Why would we go further down the path to hell on earth when North Korea is a living example of the mindset that generates such a hell. I mean, Barry Brownstein always has wonderful essays. I love how he connects the dots in this one. You'll find a link to it in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Stay with us. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you would like to subscribe to my show notes, I will be happy to send you a copy of them. It's a very simple matter. Just give me your email address. You can do that by clicking the subscribe button, which you'll find in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. So, going to be talking a little bit about Bitcoin today and talking about your money. And if it isn't safe in the bank, well, where would it be safe? Got an essay here from Thomas L. Knapp. This was published on everythingvoluntary.com. The politicians keep proving you can't trust their money, so don't. And Knapp says, it's a strange time to be a cryptocurrency enthusiast. By any rational, rational calculation, the value of Bitcoin and other alternative money relative to government fiat currencies should be hitting unheard of highs right now. Yet Bitcoin seems stuck in a perpetual spiral around the U.S. $40,000 mark, and most other cryptocurrencies are similarly flat. And so he asks, what's up with that? Last week, Canada's self-proclaimed temporary dictator, Justin Trudeau, made it clear that established government-created money kept in established government-regulated institutions like banks isn't safe if its owner disagrees with or is just thought to disagree with even a liberal democratic regime. Well, this week, established government-regulated investments worldwide are flopping back and forth in in price as investors try to figure out whether the politicians are about to take us over the edge into the world's largest pointless and evil war since 1945, which would certainly entail both further investment turmoil and actions by governments to tax or inflate away or in some cases just openly freeze or seize your wealth. Now, he says, if you think these things don't affect you, the thing you're doing that you think is thinking isn't. If you're not moving your disposable cash into cryptocurrency or metals, which also seem to be a relatively running relatively flat pricing, you're pretty much just begging Joe Biden, Vladimir Putin, and a host of lesser gangsters to rob you blind. Now, one caveat, he says, which the Trudeau coup made explicit, holding cryptocurrency doesn't protect you if you keep it in exchanges with custodial wallets that can be frozen on orders from politicians. To the extent that there are old sayings in a financial milieu that's just entering its teens, one of the biggest is, not your keys, not your crypto. If you keep your Bitcoin or other assets in the custodial wallets of government-related exchanges, they're not safe. Now, the good news is that there are a number of non-custodial wallets available for download, and they're easy to find. Google is your friend. These wallets don't store your cryptographic keys. Those keys are always in your hands. Your account can't be frozen or seized. The app is just an interface for sending and receiving, not an actual storage location. So even if the app stops functioning, you can use your keys to reconstitute your wallet elsewhere or just keep it on paper till you want to move cryptocurrency out of it. He says the politicians keep proving you can't trust their money or their intentions, so don't. Amen. Thomas L. Knapp. Beautifully stated. Now, let's let's take it one step further. See, like a lot of people right now, I'm experiencing this very strong urge to buy some cryptocurrency. And as Brian Parsons explains, the reason that so many of us are becoming bullish on uh, Bitcoin is largely because the ruling class does not want us to have it. Parsons says, as a paleoconservative, I find my political lineage in classical liberalism, also known as libertarianism. 
I voted for former Congressman Ron Paul, and I continue to support many of the ideas that he spent a political career espousing. On several occasions, I attended Ron Paul gatherings where I was introduced to the many then-fringe ideas that are now mainstream conversations. One of those conversations is monetary policy. Now, he says the libertarians were always hyper-focused on the role of the Federal Reserve Bank as the lender of last resort and its role in the creation of the booms and busts of the business cycle. It has remained their assertion that every recession and depression of the last 100 years finds its origin in the national monetary policy of the Federal Reserve System. Looking to history, libertarians have pegged the end of most civilized nations to the debasement of their currency. And in times when the value of the currency was tied to the weight or purity of the metal that it was minted with, insolvent governments would often cut corners by mixing the metal with cheaper metals to make it stretch and create the ability to emit more money. Well, since 1971 and the end of the Bretton Woods Agreement, the United States dollar has been delinked from precious metals like gold and silver. And this has created an unfettered printing press that is the equivalent of the monetary debasement of civilization's past. He says this currency debasement, which we now refer to as inflation, is a function of the government manipulating prices by flooding the markets with increasingly worthless money in an attempt to drive the consumption of goods and services. And consumers are now feeling the, consumpt- the, the repercussions rather, of, of this as the government locked the labor base in their homes and injected the economy with newly minted cash. In the United States... More than 35% of all money in its 245-year existence was printed since the beginning of the pandemic in 2020. You almost need to see a chart to appreciate how staggeringly huge that amount is. Now, he says one way in which the libertarians have hedged against this government-created inflation has been to invest in precious metals like gold and silver. Gold and silver are relatively stable investments, but not great growth strategies. Another way they've sought to protect their savings is by investing in cryptocurrency, such as Bitcoin. Now, Bitcoin is volatile, but it has been an excellent growth strategy for early adopters. And he says, I must admit, I viewed Bitcoin much the same way that investors probably view non-fungible tokens or NFTs now. I didn't necessarily see the value in investing in a fiat or unbacked currency as volatile as Bitcoin when a more stable U.S. dollar was king. But he says the libertarians got the last laugh. Had I purchased $10,000 worth of Bitcoin 10 years ago, I would be sitting on nearly $40 million worth today. So what is cryptocurrency? Well, he says, simply put, cryptocurrency is decentralized digital money. It is a store of value that derives its worth based on what other users are willing to pay for it. And its value can be manipulated in much the same way that the stock market can by large stakeholders buying and selling in quantities that drive market reactions. However, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies have one killer advantage that government-backed currencies do not. Cryptocurrencies often have a finite supply of coins that will ever exist because they were capped at the time of creation. They're also registered in a decentralized database called a blockchain. Why am I bullish on Bitcoin? Well, he says, first, it's well-established, and it's now having been in circulation since 2009. Second, there is ample infrastructure available for sharing and even withdrawing cash from Bitcoin, as Bitcoin ATMs exist around the country. Third, many businesses accept Bitcoin as payment. Finally, Bitcoin provides some security and autonomy as a non-centralized form of payment. 
<clears throat> now, he says, if you've watched what's transpired in Canada as a result to their or a response to their trucker convoy, it's reminiscent of what many Americans experienced following the attendance at the Stop the Steal rally January 6th of 2021. The Canadian government has declared dissent illegal and seized the financial assets of donors and participants in the convoy. Middle-class individuals who didn't attend but dared to donate in protest of COVID mandates found their bank accounts and credit cards frozen, and they were doxxed by the state press who printed their names in the papers. So one way to protect free speech and dissent is to decentralize these donations by sending them via anonymous transactions with cryptocurrency. Assuming that you store your cryptocurrency offline and not in an exchange, there is no way for a third party to confiscate your assets without physically confiscating the devices on which your cryptocurrency is stored. The Canadian government made every attempt to confiscate the cryptocurrency of these nonviolent protesters, or dissenters rather, but software providers of digital wallets rightly responded, they have no personal data to share. They literally do not. App-based digital wallet data is stored, encrypted on user devices, and not in the cloud. Now, unfortunately, I'm running up against the clock here, so I'll let you discover the rest of Brian Parsons' article for yourself. I have a link here in the sh- <laughs> excuse me in the show notes. I think it'd be worth your time. This much is clear: governments and central banks view cryptocurrency as an existential threat because it enables financial transactions where they are no longer a central player. It does away with the need for them. Crackdowns on dissent that coincide with crackdowns on cryptocurrency suggest that governments view cryptocurrency itself as a form of dissent. Perhaps we're not far off from the communist Chinese policy of simply banning cryptocurrency altogether. In the meantime, he says, why not go buy some some Bitcoin, rather? There is no better form of political speech than one that entails financial freedom. I know, some people say, are you just saying that you should just do it as an act of dissent? Yeah, I'm kind of saying that, but he actually makes a pretty strong case for some other reasons why you should consider it. Again, there's a link in the show notes. Check it out for yourself at thebrianhydeshow.com. Thanks again for joining us in this daily exercise in wrong think. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This program exists because there are people out there who are actively searching for the truth. And what they are looking for is not so much someone to tell them what to think, but rather just to point them in the direction of where can I find good, credible, timely information on which I can have a better understanding of the world around me. And I like to think that uh, the people who listen to this show are also dialing it in for the opportunity to learn not only a little bit about the world around them, but also what they can do to, to make a difference, to make a noticeable difference in how things go. So if you're one of those people... 
I appreciate you being a part of this process. I appreciate you giving me a chance to bend your ear. And my goal here is not to get you angry or to make you fearful, and there's a lot of stuff that has people angry and fearful at every turn. My goal is to help you feel more empowered and certain about who you are, what you stand for, and how you can make the difference you were born to make. So you're going to notice in today's show there's kind of a strong theme of we've got to be able to differentiate between uh, authority that uh, that deserves our allegiance and authority that's just simply demanding, hey, worship me, I have all the answers, and don't you dare think outside the box. You'll also notice there's a very strong flavor of getting yourself financially separated from the system in as much as you can, which it turns out is not that easy. As we saw in Canada last week where people's accounts were being frozen and people being threatened with financial ruin, simply because they were on the wrong side of an issue that, uh, that their government wanted to punish them for, for supporting. So if you were paying attention to what happened in Canada last week, you may be wondering, well, could it happen here? Got an article from Max Borders. This was published in the American Institute for Economic Research website. Trudeau's tactics are coming to America. And uh, I'm not pushing any particular kind of crypto by the way, but the the subtitle here, the the second part of that title, Learn Crypto Custody. So try to keep an open mind. I'll try not to sound like I'm trying to sell you a particular kind of crypto. I'm not, but it's making more and more sense as I go forward that this is probably something every one of us should have, you know, some of our money in just because it frustrates the control freaks among us. Max Borders says, In the dying days of totalitarian rule in socialist Poland, messages from a pirate radio transmission started to spread among the people. Of course, the regime forbade such transmissions, but the pirate transmitter took a chance. He had no no idea how many people were listening to his dissonant ideas until one night he asked the people of Warsaw to switch a light off and on if they were listening. And before you knew it, the entire city was blinking. Now, this is just one example of how human freedom finds a way. Now, it would take time before the Solidarity Movement would purge Poland of their rulers. But the pirate transmitter and the blinking lights seeded the change. Now, some speculate that Justin Trudeau is Fidel Castro's bastard son. Now, if he is, authoritarianism apparently runs in the genes. The Canadian Prime Minister has shown how the corrupt and heavy-handed among us find their way to the top of any hierarchical control structure, even in our vaunted democratic republics. And they will seize on any so-called emergency to grab power, suppress their enemies, and control the people through whacking sticks and waving carrots. Despite the virus entering its endemic phase, the purported emergency had been covid That is until Canadian insurrectionist truckers, read, low-born men, pushed back against Canada's unjustifiable mandates. Despite the waning efficacy of the vaccines and the light damage wrought by Omicron, the truckers messed around with the plan. Worse still, they scrambled elite status signals, but did they actually harm anyone? Well, apart from causing folks in Ottawa some sleepless nights, The truckers engaged in peaceful assembly in order to protest the restrictions. The protests spread globally, many to positive effect as officials began to ease restrictions abroad. 
Pulling notes from the Biden MSM social justice playbook, Trudeau and the Canadian legacy media were complicit in smearing the truckers as bad actors. Then they set about trying to snuff out the people's blinking lights. Specifically, Trudeau's minions, including the execrable execrable, uh, Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland, seized trucker funds, froze accounts, and pressured crowdfunding platforms to expropriate expropriate resources from the truckers and their supporters. The regime has even tried to sanction certain crypto wallet addresses. Now, Max Borders says, my late father was an American trucker. And while he was not all that political, he had a pretty strong compass when it came to matters of right and wrong. He would undoubtedly have drawn inspiration from what we're seeing today. Indeed, we might just see a hold-my-beer response from U.S. truckers and other activists concerned about the latest Canadian import. But anyone, trucker or otherwise, protesting authoritarian measures in the U.S. had better be prepared. According to economist Peter St. Ange, Trudeau is a sign of what's to come. Now, he himself may fail. Given his unimpressive personal traits, he probably will. But the will to power his authoritarianism represents is something we'll be fighting off for decades, hopefully successfully this time. But what can we do to keep the lights blinking? Well, Peter St. Ong says, Fortunately, this time we have an ace up our sleeve, Bitcoin. Bitcoin takes the money printer out of the hands of the totalitarian government, radically curtailing their ability to bid away society's resources. But Bitcoin's biggest advantage politically is it makes it impossible to silence dissent. They can reduce it. Yes, they can harass and arrest and trample. But so long as there is a way to transact, hence to coordinate and marshal resources and messaging, they cannot silence us. The harder they repress, the more we shrink. But the more powerful our remaining messaging gets. This is how governments that shoot dissenters nonetheless collapse. Now, Max Border says you might not like Bitcoin, but even past critics have come around to the need for something else in the ballpark. You might choose another peer-to-peer cash system or token, such as Ethereum or Cardano. But he says, whatever you choose, make sure you are ready to learn how to be a custodian of your cryptocurrency. This is true whether you're a donor or a recipient. Learning about crypto will help keep the lights blinking in America. After all, the Biden administration has already made threats. So learn cryptocurrency. If you cherish freedom but you don't know anything about crypto, well, it's worth it to learn a little bit. Don't think about crypto as a get-rich-quick plan but rather a donation to the protection of freedom itself. And he says our future may depend on it. So here's a good starting point tutorial. Explains cryptocurrency exchanges, software wallets, and hardware wallets, and especially managing your private keys. It's a a link that he includes in the article, which I've linked to in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Now he says if you're comfortable with using cryptocurrency wallets, You can learn about using decentralized exchanges. And then if you would feel more comfortable getting a pro to help you, you could do a lot worse than the Bitcoin consultancy for Bitcoin training in particular. Those who want to learn more about the Ethereum universe can contact a linked ETH wallet management expert. I'll tell you, I've been bending the ears of all of my friends who I know are well-informed on crypto. 
And, you know, none of them is approaching this from the standpoint of, woo-wee, you know, it's a, it's a multi-level marketing thing. We're all trying to get in, you know, at the, at the front of the wave. Most of them have been following this for some time. Some of them, you know, have had, you know, computers, you know, mining Bitcoin for years. But to a person, the people who are best informed about Bitcoin are saying you, everybody should have at least part of their income in Bitcoin. So maybe this is something that, uh, that is, is worth your time as well. You know, I'm, I, I get nothing. There's no commission or anything. If you, if you go out and you buy some cryptocurrency, nobody's going to say, okay, did you hear about this on Brian's show? But I just want you to know this is the conversation I'm having you know, myself. And, and it's tough because my wife is very, uh, very conservative in terms of, you know, how, how we invest or how we spend our money. And so, you know, this is not something she knows a great deal about. I know marginally more than she does on this, but it's not something that she's like, oh, yeah, this makes perfect sense. And for me, the the, the value here, and, and I, I know I've had friends contact me saying, oh, Brian, you know, you're talking a lot about cryptocurrency, but don't you understand? It's, it's not real either, any more real than our fiat dollars are, which I get. But that blockchain system of exchange... To me, that's where the value lies in that it has privacy, and most importantly, it keeps those greedy, grubby little fingers of government out of your account. Something to think about if you're serious about uh, maintaining as much of your autonomy as possible. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to give a quick shout-out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. Now, when you are getting ready to purchase a home, of course, you want to make sure you have your financing in order, but it has never been more important to make sure that you can get that loan in a timely fashion. Competition is very fierce. I mean, the amount of people who are moving to the Intermountain West right now, it's it's pretty amazing. I actually saw a little video yesterday of des- describing this, particularly California. Where is everybody moving from California? And, uh, yep, Utah is one of those big destinations. So if I'm not saying you have to be from California, but if you are moving to the state of Utah and you need a traditional home loan, you need a reverse mortgage, you need a VA loan, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, these are the folks you need to talk to. You can call them at 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So I'm going to talk money for just a little bit longer here. Got a great article that uh, was sent to me by a friend. The War on Cash entering bold new phase. And Ruben, I got to tip my hat to you. Thank you for keeping an eye out. Uh, this is true, by the way, for for every listener. If, if you find something that's interesting, I am very, very happy when, when people send me information uh, to consider sharing on the show, just because I'm only one person, not omniscient, not yet. So it's always helpful. And this, this is one of the best articles I've seen in a while. It's from Jim Rickards. I'm sorry, James Rickards on thedailyreckoning.com. 
And James Rickard says with so much news about uh, Ukraine, inflation, massive government spending and exploding deficits, it's easy to overlook the ongoing war on cash. That's a mistake because it has serious implications not only for your money, but also for your privacy and personal freedom, as you'll see today. He says the war on cash is a global effort being waged on many fronts. But he says, my view is that the war on cash is dangerous in terms of lost privacy and the risk of government confiscation of wealth. Governments always use money laundering, drug dealing, and terrorism as excuses to keep tabs on honest citizens and deprive them of the ability to use money alternatives like physical cash, gold, and these days cryptocurrencies. The real burden of the war on cash falls on honest citizens who are made vulnerable to wealth confiscation through negative interest rates, loss of privacy, account freezes, and limits on cash withdrawals or transfers. Now, the enemies of cash promote the ease and convenience of digital payments. Of course, there's no denying that digital payments are certainly convenient. And he says, I use them myself in the form of credit and debit cards and wire transfers, automatic deposits and bill payments. And I'm sure you do, too. But the surest way to lull someone into complacency is to offer a convenience that quickly becomes habit and impossible to do without. The convenience factor is becoming more prevalent, and consumers are moving from cash to digital payments just as they moved from gold and silver coins to paper money a few hundred years, a hundred years ago. rather. Now, one survey revealed that more than a third of Americans and Europeans would have no problem at all giving up cash and going completely digital. Specifically, the study showed 34% of Europeans and 38% of Americans surveyed would prefer going cashless. But James Rickard says, in reality, the so-called cashless society is just a Trojan horse for a system in which all financial wealth is electronic and represented digitally in the records of a small number of mega banks and asset managers. Once that is achieved, it will be easy for state power to seize and freeze the wealth or subject it to constant surveillance, taxation, and other forms of digital confiscation like negative interest rates. Now, they can't do that as long as you can go to your bank and withdraw your cash. That's the key. In other words, it's much easier for them to control your money if they first herd you into a digital cattle pen. That's their true objective, and the other reasons are just a smokescreen. That's what they won't tell you. He says elites know that they can't ram their unpopular agendas through in normal times. The global elites and deep state actors always have a laundry list of programs and regulations they can't wait to put into practice. They know that most of these are deeply unpopular and they could never get away with putting them into practice during ordinary times. Yet when a crisis hits, citizens are desperate for fast action and quick solutions. The elites bring forward their rescue packages, but then use these as Trojan horses to sneak their wish lists inside. That's what we're seeing. The USA Patriot Act passed after 9-11. That's a good example. Some counterterrorist measures were needed, of course. But the Treasury had a long-standing wish list involving reporting cash transactions and limiting citizens' ability to get cash. So they plugged that wish list into the Patriot Act We've been living with the results ever since, even though 9-11 is long in the past. Cash prevents central banks from imposing negative interest rates. Because if they did, people would withdraw their cash from the banking system. 
If they stuff their cash in a mattress, they don't earn anything on it. That's true. But at least they're not losing anything on it. Once all money is digital, you won't have the option of withdrawing your cash and avoiding negative rates. You'll be trapped in a digital pen with no way out. So what about moving your money into cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin? Well, he says, first, let's understand that governments enjoy a monopoly on money creation, and they're not about to surrender that monopoly to digital currencies like Bitcoin. Libertarian supporters of crypto celebrate their decentralized nature and lack of government control, yet, is it, yet he says their belief in the sustainability of powerful systems outside of government control is naive. Blockchain does not exist in the ether, despite the name of one cryptocurrency, and it does not reside on Mars. Blockchain depends on critical infrastructure, including servers, telecommunications networks, the banking system, and the power grid, all of which are subject to government control. And he says you need to understand that reality. Now, the good news is that cash is still a dominant form of payment in many countries, including the U.S. The problem is that as digital payments grow and the use of cash diminishes, a tipping point is reached where it suddenly makes no sense to continue using cash because of the expense and logistics involved. Once cash usage shrinks to a certain point, economies of scale are lost and usage can go to zero almost overnight. And I like the example he uses here. Remember how music CDs disappeared suddenly once MP3 and streaming formats became popular? Okay, that's how fast cash can disappear. And once the war on cash gains that kind of momentum it will be practically impossible to stop. And besides the loss of, dig- of, of privacy, rather, other dangers from the cashless society arise from the fact that digital money transferred by credit or debit cards or other electronic payment systems is completely dependent on the power grid. If the power grid goes out due to storms, accidents, sabotage, or cyber attacks, our digital economy will grind to a complete halt. So the time to protect yourself is now. The best way is to keep a portion of your wealth outside of the banking system. That's why it's a good idea to keep some of your liquidity in paper cash while you can, gold or silver coins. The gold and silver coins in particular will be money good in every state of the world. That's why he says, I'm always saying that savers and those with long-term view should get physical gold now while prices are still attractive and while they still can. Now, he says, I strongly recommend that you own physical gold and silver. I recommend you allocate 10% of your investable assets to gold. If you really want to be aggressive, maybe 20%, but no more. Just make sure you don't store it in the bank because it will be subject to confiscation. And that defeats the whole purpose of having this sort of protection in the first place. Jim Rickard says, I hold a significant portion of my wealth in non-digital form, including real estate, fine art, and precious metals in safe, non-bank storage. Now, he says, that's not because I'm paranoid or a fanatic prepper. I just think it's prudent in these times. But he says, I strongly suggest that you do the same, because the cashless society could be here quicker than you think. I'll tell you, looking how quickly they rolled out the uh, financial lockdown of the Freedom Convoy in Canada... This is a warning I would not uh, wave away as, ah, yeah, yeah, maybe someday. I think it's particularly relevant now, and every single one of us should be getting our plan B into action. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Thank you so much for joining us here on The Brian Hyde Show, where you can subscribe to my show notes just by going to my website. It's very simple, thebrianhydeshow.com. Click the subscribe button. It'll ask for your email, and I will take it from there. <clears throat> I'll drop you a copy, excuse me, of, of uh, my notes every time that I uh, publish them. Whew, feel like I'm going through a second puberty this morning. Anyway, one of the great things about the American system is that we have numerous ways in which to redress our grievances. Now, it may not seem that way at times, but nonetheless, we, we do have opportunities. And one of those things that we have to come to is the idea of how do we walk this line between compliance and civil disobedience? Because not everybody's quite there to where they're ready to, you know, step up and, and you know, be civilly disobedient. Got a great article here from Austin Stone about walking that line. Not up for street action, he says, then get busy fighting in the trenches. Austin Stone asks, do you consider yourself politically active? (laughs) Ten years ago, that likely would have meant reading the news, voting in local elections, or volunteering to support policy initiatives or candidates. Now it often means taking to the streets on foot or in an 18-wheeler to demand immediate change. Backward though it may seem, civil disobedience and regular unrest have now become central to our polity. This is a symptom of a breach of trust from the top down. So, it's admirable when people protest and resist. But sometimes the people whose policies we protest declare any resistance to be unauthorized. And before you know it, being politically active can put you on the wrong side of the law. Now, we all saw this happen recently when Prime Minister Justin Trudeau of Canada invoked the Emergencies Act to outlaw the ongoing trucker protest against his government's vaccine mandates. Last year, average Americans faced similar sanctions when the National School Board Association and the Department of Justice colluded to brand-concerned parents, domestic terrorists. The peaceful protesters arrested on the streets of Ottawa and the families in Fairfax who faced intimidation from the federal government are icons of courage. And by the way, it's taking place much closer to home than you would think. Last night, I was privy to sit in on an interview with a a concerned parent in, uh, I believe it was uh, the Alpine School District in Utah, who found himself arrested simply because he knocked on a door, a closed and locked door, trying to gain access to a school board meeting. And the police uh, charged him with, I think it was uh, disturbing the peace. And there, were, there was something else, very, again, just very minor charges. But why would you charge somebody? Because somebody in the, you know, in the school district was like, hey, this parent's been a pain in the butt. Let's see if we can find a reason to trespass them. Oh, that was the other thing, is trespassing. I mean, look, you may not have a lot of sympathy for folks, but it's pretty easy to go from concerned parent to terrorist in the minds of, of some of these political leaders, so. A lot easier than you think. Just be warned. Now, understandably, the author here says, not everyone is politically active, ready to stand on the front lines of our new and more dangerous culture war. And that's especially true for parents and senior citizens who don't exactly want to put themselves in harm's way. Now, something he says here is that we can't vote our way out of our current predicament, but that doesn't mean civic engagement is fruitless. 
All Americans have the ability and duty to use the legal tools our forebears gave us to fight back against corrupt, petty tyrants. Intelligence gathering is the key to victory. And American citizens benefit from some of the world's strongest open-source transparency laws. Now, the only trouble is they're rarely used by the average American. You don't have to be a trained attorney investigating a high-profile case like a Russiagate spying scandal in order to open a, in order to file rather an open records request. You have all you need to uncover conflicts of interest and financial mismanagement. You can stop crooked ideologues from failing up into an agency, state legislature, university, or any other institution. So the question is, why aren't you? From federal agency secretaries to local school board members, every taxpayer-funded email, budget proposal, and lunch receipt that originates from the bureaucracy is subject to taxpayers' review. So you don't need experts to handle your civic duty. You yourself must hold our leaders accountable. Read the statutes and court decisions that set the standards of behavior for your elected and appointed representatives. Then submit well-crafted open records requests to ensure those laws are followed. Now, when government cronyism protects the corrupt, we must crowdsource the enforcement of the law and force self-dealing bureaucrats out. This is smart populism. One well-placed Freedom of Information Act request can do more than a huge rally. The citizen gadfly role is especially suitable for retired Americans with time to invest. Instead of posting opinions online, senior citizens should become local heroes like Kirk Allen and John Kraft of Southern Illinois. Rather than resign themselves to living in the most corrupt state in the country, these two military veterans made a hobby out of pursuing those who try to use public service for their own game. Or their own gain, rather. Same thing, kind of. Since 2011... Their open records requests, lawsuits, journalism, even citizens' arrests have driven 732 government officials out of office, elicited court rulings against illegal COVID mandates, and recouped millions in taxpayer dollars. And now these two train thousands of others to do the same. Even busy parents must join the fight to protect their children. Pandemic school lockdowns and public health mandates have galvanized moms and dads to expose corrupt municipal leaders, keep their local school boards in check, and run for local office themselves. Parents can follow the lead of Christopher Rufo, for example, who organizes resistance against critical race theory in school curricula. He's led thousands of parents to local victories across the country, including ending a program in North Carolina last month that taught white inferiority to disabled preschoolers. As citizens of the greatest country on earth, he says, we haven't fully tapped the other weapons at our disposal to resist tyranny. And I like what he's saying here. We need to think locally. Most state legislators, for example, don't have their heads in the clouds of national politics. They can accomplish much, even against hostile governors, using tactics like budget negotiations, supermajorities, and constitutional amendments. Other office holders, including judges, district attorneys, and sheriffs, are much easier to elect or hold accountable than members of Congress or mayors. And they have the power to strike down, not enforce, and otherwise impede unlawful and immoral mandates. George Soros and his super PACs target these local offices heavily. And so he says we should too. 
These local public servants will become the front line against growing anarcho-tyranny, the selective persecution of law-abiding citizens while crime runs rampant. So Austin Stone says, Americans who want to be politically active in troubled times must recognize our power and start using it tactically. Citizens must drive petty tyrants out of their undeserved positions of authority, reestablish American values in our schools and police departments, and install state and local officials with integrity and fortitude. He says, we appreciate those who take to the streets, but if you can't join in, don't just throw up your hands. The American system offers many ways to redress our grievances. Now, I have to admit, I don't really... I I don't uh, feel comfortable with large rallies. And and hear me out on this. It's, it's not just my xenophobia or my fear of crowds. It's <clears throat> because when people get together in masses, it's very easy for a very tiny minority to either hijack the intent of that gathering or to uh, to commit acts that are then blamed on everybody, even though they didn't participate. January 6th is probably the biggest example of this that I can think of. So while it's impressive to have those numbers in the street, and while it, you know, it, it makes for some good optics, look at this, look how many hundreds of thousands of people showed up here to protest this today. That's kind of a, a flash in the pan compared to the people who just go about living their lives with the greatest amount of freedom possible, who refuse to live as anything less than a free man or woman. And this doesn't mean that they're doing it necessarily. They're not flying a Trump flag or, you know, flying, you know, some kind of, you know, banner behind their car as they drive down the street. Oftentimes they're not even drawing attention to themselves, which is kind of what makes this, this so powerful. They simply have stopped asking permission or obeying every mandate, you know, out of the idea that, well, I just want to, you know, get along smoothly. They just live their lives and go about their business like productive citizens without asking for permission or begging for the leave of their majesty. I submit that doing that on a daily basis will actually have more influence, particularly on the people around you, than attending, you know, a dozen or more rallies in the course of a year. It's those quiet examples of what freedom looks like that really make the difference. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Final segment of the show today. But not before I say a few kind words about SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. They are located in St. George, a family business that's been in operation since 1984. And if you or someone you know is into sewing or long-arm quilting or embroidery or any other uh, of the sewing arts, this is a store that you should really know about because they not only sell, for instance, Cuddles Fabric, 35% off. That's, that's a great deal comparable to the Minky Couture fabrics. They also sell handy quilter, long-arm quilting machines. In fact, they sell more of them than anybody else, and for a very good reason. You get a very competitive deal. You get the best service all the time. They install them. They'll train you how to use these machines. They're really awesome tools. 
And it's important to have someone to call when you're trying to get that next amazing quilt finished. Even if you, you know, your skills have been forgotten, you haven't used them for a while. Sewing and Quilting Center can show you how to do it because that's the kind of people they are. And, of course, Teresa Alsop, who's the owner of the business, doesn't just know how to operate the machine. She's also a certified technician as well. So show some love to SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. They're located in St. George, Utah. Tell them thanks for sponsoring this program. So you know how you can tell when you're dealing with someone who's pushing cultural Marxism? This is just kind of an easy rule of thumb. They will always be policing your language in order to keep the class warfare alive. Oh, you can't say that anymore. That's not allowed. And it's to keep you off balance, to make sure that you're never really sure of, well, are, are we still, can we still say this? Can we still, you know, use these words? Or is this now, you know, off limits? John Stossel has a great article about how even the American Medical Association is getting into policing language instead of helping patients. He says the American Medical Association now tells doctors, use woke language. It's issued a 54-page guide telling doctors things like, don't say equality, say equity. Don't use the word minority, say historically marginalized. In fact, he says much of the AMA's advisory sounds like Marxism. Expose property rights. Individualism is problematic. Corporations limit prospects for good health. People underpaid and forced into poverty as a result of banking policies. Now, he says that's too much even for some people on the left, like writer Matthew Iglesias, whose article about the AMA caught John Stossel's attention. So he sat him down for an interview, and and Iglesias in the new video says, Can you imagine anyone actually doing this? What would happen if you were in a clinical setting and someone starts giving you this lecture about landowners? Nobody practices medicine like that, and it wouldn't be helpful to anybody. Now, he points out that while the American Medical Association now tells doctors to call poor neighborhoods systematically divested, not poor, it has long lobbied for things that hurt poor people, including restricting the number of doctors. The U.S. has fewer doctors than other countries. Per person, Austria has twice as many. Iglesias says, we have the best paid physicians in the world and the scarcest physicians in the world. That's not a coincidence. Years ago, in most of America, anyone could practice medicine. Licensed doctors didn't like that. This led to the formation of the American Medical Association. They are a trade group, says Iglesias. They advance the interests of their members, like the teachers union or the dock workers union. It's called a trade association rather than a union, says Iglesias, but it's never been all that different. In 1986, the AMA called for smaller enrollment in medical schools to curb an alleged doctor surplus. In 1997, it even got the government to pay hospitals not to train doctors. Today, the AMA supports rules that make it hard for doctors from other countries to practice here. Foreign doctors must complete a U.S. residency program. They don't get credit for having practiced abroad. Such rules preserve America's doctor shortage, and that shortage allows the average doctor to make more than $200,000 a year. Well-paid doctors can be choosy about where they work. That's why it's tough to find a doctor in rural America, says Iglesias. Now, there are lots of Walmarts and Targets in rural areas because there is no limit on big stores. Walmart and Target compete to serve as many communities as they can. Likewise, restaurants keep time that's convenient for their customers. Doctors keep hours that are convenient for doctors. 
Now, Stossel asked the American Medical Association for an interview about this, but they declined. They sent us a statement saying they work to approve approximately 20 new medical schools. Well, why does the AMA and its Liaison Committee on Medical Education even get to approve new schools? He says, I don't get to approve new TV reporters. The AMA statement claims it supports increasing the number of physicians. Well, if that's true, then he says it's long overdue. A study in the Annals of Internal Medicine says if there were more primary care doctors, 7,200 lives would be saved. And since doctors are scarce, more people go to nurses for help. But AMA lobbyists push for laws that require nurses to be supervised by a doctor. And Iglesias says that makes it much harder to open retail health clinics that offer low-cost, high-convenience treatment. Nurses have a lot of training. There's a lot of useful stuff they can do. So Stossel says the AMA's lobbying hurts poor people most. And the AMA doesn't like talking about that. Instead, it now obsesses about politically correct language, telling doctors, don't say ex-cons, say formerly incarcerated. Don't say slaves, say enslaved people. So it's hard to imagine how that helps patients. Iglesias concludes, getting really obsessed with language politics is a good way to position themselves as the good guys without addressing their own role in creating these problems. And I know some people get uncomfortable with the idea of, you know, cultural Marxism, political correctness. I used to have a very uh, long-standing argument back and forth with a, a newspaper columnist who insisted, you know, political correctness is not about forcing people to think or speak a certain way. It's just, it's simply about manners. Oh, yes. <laughs> manners or else we will cancel you, which is what this has grown into. It's, it's one of the favorite tools of cancel culture. And it really is. If you, if you have ever, I don't know if you've ever read anything by Karl Marx, and some people would say, why would I want to know what Karl Marx has to say? Well, considering that uh, there are a lot of people working very hard day and night to force Marxism on you or Marxism light, you might just want to understand what exactly was Marx going on about? What exactly was his goal? And don't just read the Communist Manifesto. Read some of his other writings to see where he was coming from. What was this guy's beef about private property? Why was he so insistent that, you know, we get rid of it? It's not like you're you're giving your mind over to him. You're simply trying to better understand where he was coming from, which is not necessarily out of sympathy, but just, okay, what was he thinking? <clears throat> Bottom line is, you will start to recognize a lot of the uh, phraseology as well as just the, the basic tenets towards controlling language, controlling thought, and controlling people that has taken root in so many of our institutions. So here's the quick down and dirty civics lesson that uh, that I hope will shed some light on, you know, why is it so important that we have some kind of independence for these institutions that make up a society? And if you look at a healthy society, you're talking a society in which you have government, you have community, you have family, you have the business sector, you have religion or clergy, you have academia, and you have media. This is just seven. There, there may be more institutions, but these are the major ones. Each of these institutions has influence, and each of them can affect change in their own ways on society. Of those institutions, the state or government is the only one that claims the authority to use force 
legal force to make people do what uh, they want it to do. All of these other institutions have to use persuasion. So what happens when one of these institutions starts to overpower all of the other institutions? Well, I would submit that we're seeing that happen right now. And how many of these institutions that I've listed, government, community, family, clergy, academia, business, what am I missing? Media. (laughs) How many of them are simply soaked in Marxist terms, Marxist thinking, collectivism? It's pretty crazy, but uh, it's, it's the majority of them. The only one that really hasn't uh, hasn't suffered significant inroads, but there's been a lot of work on it, is the family. And this is one of the things that you'll also understand about Marx is he looked at uh, families and said, "Who needs family under the party? You know, you don't you don't need family. Family is is part of that oppressive class warfare, you know, thing that that we're trying to uh, to fight." Of course, he viewed the whole history of humanity as nothing but one class warring against another class. Well, that battle is certainly continuing. And would it surprise you if I suggested that it's uh, it's not a battle that started with Marx. It's part of a an eternal battle that has been going on forever between light and darkness. And the question at the center of that battle is simply this. Will you be free to choose or not? This is The Brian Hyde Show.